This morning's scripture passage comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to all the leaders in all Israel, the heads of fathers' houses. And Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the tent of meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place that David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Moreover, the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, had made was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the assembly sought him out. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father, and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? God answered Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or life, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Annalisha. I realized in announcing, you know, bringing a new pastor on board, Eric, I just left a few things out as I was sitting there. I realized you may be wondering, well, when is he coming? When can we meet him? Um, you'll be able to meet him on November 12th on that Sunday. He and his family will be here uh, worshiping with us, so you'll get a chance to meet him then and just welcome him to the Trinity family. They'll be moving in mid-November and likely starting in mid-December. So that's the rough timeline right there. Last week, we had a guest preacher, my friend, and one of my mentors, Doug Swaggerty, was preaching. I'm glad to, to be back, and we're back in our series on Chronicles. We're calling this series Renew. The reason we're calling it that is because that is if I were to pick one word to describe the whole purpose and point of Chronicles, it would be that word, renew. It was written, the book of Chronicles was written to bring about a renewal of faith. A renewal of faith for people who struggle with disappointment, disenchantment, with God, with life, and doubt. Anybody been there? Is anybody there right now? I know I have been. Chronicles was written to bring hope to people who go through those experiences. This morning, we, we transition, so 
If you have your Bible or if you notice from the reading, we're moving from 1 Chronicles to 2 Chronicles, from the story of King David to the story now of his son Solomon. And that is a huge transition. It's a huge transition in this book and in the history of Israel. When we read the end of 1 Chronicles and the beginning of 2 Chronicles, we can get a sense of how big a deal this was. Huge major change in the nation of Israel. They were losing their greatest leader, King David. And people were wondering, how is the new king going to do? How can he fill the shoes of someone so great as David, and how will he handle this change? As David was, and throughout the entire um, story of the Old Testament, we see he's lifted up as the model king. He is the ideal king. Every other king is compared to him. That's a tough act to follow. If you think of some of what David did, he brought peace to, to Israel. He ushered in an age of rest. He united all the people of Israel before no other leader was able to get all the tribes to work together and be united, but David did. You, you re, we read about his story in, uh, in 2 Samuel, and first in 2 Samuel, we find like not only was he a great leader, but he was also a handsome guy. And then you realize that David was the author of most of the Psalms. So he was a poet and actually a musician and a good singer. And you're like, man, is there anything this guy couldn't do? He's like the all-star of all-stars. So this is like following Abraham Lincoln as president, right? Who followed him? Who knows? I know somebody knows. I didn't know. Andrew Johnson. It's like getting up on stage and you're like, okay, now you get to follow uh, Josh Groban as the singer for this evening, or Celine Dion, or whoever you think is the most amazing singer ever. For a preacher, I'll speak in my preacher language. If I were to have to preach after Tim Keller, who I think is the most phenomenal preacher out there. But the way that Chronicles tells the story of this transition is to place a very strong emphasis on the continuity between David and his son Solomon. And we read about that in those first few verses of, of chapter 1. But although it, it puts the emphasis on this continuity, it also emphasizes something about Solomon that as far as I'm aware, at least in Chronicles, as I was looking at this, it never says about David, that he excelled at something that maybe wasn't David's forte. And it's like, well, take that, David. You couldn't do this as good as I could. And what was that? It was wisdom, wisdom. Our text for this morning Verses 1 through 13 of 2 Chronicles is all about how Solomon began his reign successfully to navigate this massive change and transition in the nation. And it's about what we need in our lives to navigate change, to handle transition well. When it comes to change and transition, life at any time, life in any place has always been marked by change and by transition. Way back in the ancient uh, world of Greek philosophy, one of the original Greek philosophers, Heraclitus, he's known to have said, the only thing constant in life is change. So way back then, they realized this is a part of life. But some of you, I know, have gone through or will soon be facing a massive transition or change in your life. A move, maybe it's been a recent move, new jobs, new marriage, new children, you're welcoming into the family. Or you see something on the horizon where a transition is looming. Some of our students, you may have transitioned from grade school to middle school. 
Some of our middle school students, you may be or have recently trans, uh, transitioned to high school, and that's a big deal. That's a big change. Maybe you're not facing any large-scale transitions in your life right now, but you maybe have some new challenges at work, at home. There are unexpected things. As parents, as our kids grow up and change, we realize, well, I didn't see that coming. I have to change the way I parent my kids as they grow. And as we go through the transitions of life stages, always it seems like we're in transition or we're just preparing for the next one. Personally, personally, as I was reflecting on this this week, our family went through a pretty big change. 14 months ago, we moved here uh, to Orange County, and I began serving as a pastor of Trinity. And I was sitting down last week with, with some guys who had been in ministry and had been connected to each other for, for many years. And as I was listening to them reminisce and tell the stories of going to seminary. These guys all went to seminary together in the 70s, and ministry happened for them in the 70s, 80s, and beyond. But as I was listening to their stories, and I was hearing them tell the stories of other people that they knew, I was just thinking, wow, life never just travels in a straight, simple line. where It's like, it's predictable. We know what's going to happen. My plan A will carry out as I think it will. Because all of them had unexpected changes, challenges in life, and it wasn't a straight line for any of them, and that struck me. You take all of our personal changes, and you add on top of that, that we are living in a time, we're living in an age, probably more than any other time, when the pace of change is faster and more complex than ever before. There's a book by Thomas Friedman uh, called Thank You for Being Late, and he's kind of a cultural observer, commentator, and he's talking all about this pace of change, and I was going to show you uh, this little graph that he put together, but I'll do my best to describe it. Uh, it's a little line graph, and one of the, the lines is going upward and says, the pace of change, and so I think right around like year 2000, he says the magic year was 2007, change just started to increase like exponentially straight up, and then there's another line going through that line. And that line represents human adaptability, just how human beings can adapt to change. And the line of, of the pace of change is far up and above beyond our ability to adapt and to understand the changes that we're facing. And so the whole book that he's writing is about we are in a place where the pace of change, the complexity of change is outweighing our ability to adapt and understand. So this morning, all that by way of introduction to, to this question that I want to ask with you and of this text. What does a Christian faith say is necessary or maybe most important during times of change, transition, and upheaval in our lives and world? How can these times in our lives that bring all kinds of disappointments and difficulties and challenges to us actually become times when we experience renewal? In our faith? Well, the answer our text gives us is wisdom. During change, during transition, what we need most of all is wisdom. We're going to be looking at three points. You'll see them in your outline the dream question, the surprising response, and how it points to the ultimate answer. In verse 7, after Solomon had officially begun his reign, we see there in verse 7, after this massive assembly of worship with the leaders of Israel, that that night, 
If we, look, if we read the story, the parallel story in 2 Kings, it tells us this was during a dream. God appeared to Solomon and said to Solomon, ask, what shall I give to you? Technically, that's not a question, I know. It's not a question mark there, but it is a question. Say, what, what do you want? Ask for anything, and I'll do it. Isn't that our dream question? This is the dream we'd all love to have, that God appears to us and says, what do you want? What do you want? I'll do it. Ask for anything, it's a blank check. Especially when our lives are out of whack in some way or we're going through a very difficult transition, wouldn't we love for God to appear to us in a dream and say, just get, what do you need? I'll give it to you, whatever you want. And we think, if God appeared to me in a dream and he asked me th this question, that would definitely lead me to a renewal of faith. I would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is there, that he loves me, that he cares for me, and that he's generous and gracious to my situation. In my own experience and in talking with people in pastoral conversation, I've noticed that at any given point in our lives, especially during times when there's change happening and transition in our lives, there's often that one thing. Maybe there are a couple things, maybe three things, but there's often that one thing that we feel like, if God would give me this, if God would resolve this, if God would do this, then life would be good. Then I would be renewed. Then things would be the way they should be. Let me ask you, what would that be for you? What would you ask for if God asked you that dream question? What comes to mind first? I know maybe the superficial, uh, stereotypical response is, oh, God appeared to me in a dream. What do you want? One billion dollars. One billion. And God says, okay. Now, did I say one billion? I actually meant 100 billion dollars, God. I know that's, that's fairly shallow. Maybe some of you were thinking about finances. Um, but if we were to have that dream, I think maybe some things would come to mind. Like Jesus said, you can't serve God in money. The root of all kinds of evil money is that. So we would be maybe a little bit more cautious. So let's just set aside that stereotypical answer. What would it be for you? Now, if things have changed for you financially, if things are tight or uncertain, maybe you would just say, God, give me what I need to be secure. As our kids grow and change and transition and parents, we have all kinds of fears and worries about our kids. We would just say, God, give me successful and good kids. Just give me that. If we're in a career transition or changes, we would maybe say, God, just give me success, give me favor in my career. In my career. Or if we're experiencing physical changes and our bodies are ailing, we might say, God, just give me health. Just give me health. Give me healing. If we're dealing with broken or changing relationships, we might say, God, give me reconciliation in this relationship. Or maybe we have doubts and we have questions about the Christian faith, and we feel like, God, just give me the answer I need to resolve these doubts and these struggles I have. Now, that's just a sample of what the one thing might be for any of us. And the thing about all these things is none of them are wrong to ask for from God. And sometimes God comes through and He does give us those things. But one of the mysteries, one of the realities of God and the Christian faith is that most often, 
God doesn't come through immediately or miraculously with that one thing. And so you might say, if God's not going to give me what I want, what's the point of even asking the dream question? That's just setting me up for disappointment. But the first lesson of this text is this. In order to experience renewal, in order to get wisdom, we must first begin by answering the question, what do you want me to do for you? To hear that question from God. In Mark 10, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, right before Jesus and his disciples go into Jerusalem, in the final week, Jesus' final week, he asks this question twice. What do you want me to do for you? The first time he asks it is in response to two of his disciples, James and John. They actually approach Jesus right as they're on the brink of entering into Jerusalem. They know something big is going to happen, and they say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Very bold thing to say to Jesus. And he says, Okay, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, Would you grant us to sit on your right hand and left hand in your glory? That's probably the biggest thing you could ever ask of God or of Jesus. We want to be right there next. You're God. We want to be just one little slot down in glory and in power. A little while later, they're walking down the road, and there's a blind beggar, and he's making all kinds of noise. He's crying out. His name is Bartimaeus. As Jesus passes by, Jesus stops, and he asks Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And he cries out, Rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus gave him sight, and he got up and followed him. The disciples answer, you think about that? I want to sit on your right hand or left hand. The blind beggars answer, I just want to see. Tells us so much about whether they understood Jesus, who he was and why he came. Our answer to the dream question tells us a lot about ourselves. What is it we think we must have? What is it we think we need to be happy, to be fulfilled? The story of Solomon's start in his reign is meant to cause us to pause and to give an answer to the question. God were to ask us, what do you want me to do for you? What's our answer? The reason why he wants us to ask that question is because there's something he wants to give us that is even better than that one thing, whatever our one thing is, and that's wisdom. Wisdom is the surprising response. That's point two in the outline. When God asks Solomon the dream question, Solomon says, give me wisdom. It's surprising because he didn't ask for the things that the typical king in his situation would ask for. Give me wealth, give me fame, give me power, give me victories, give me control, give me the approval of the people. He asked and said, for wisdom and knowledge to lead the people, and God said, I will give you that. Maybe you know something, a little something about Solomon, the character of Solomon. Above all else in the Bible, he's known for his wisdom. He's the author of most of the Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, likely. Um, debatable, but Ecclesiastes as well. And wisdom is a huge, it's one of the richest concepts throughout the entire Bible. What is it? Steve gave a good definition. You could say wisdom is know-how. 
And that has two parts. There's the know and the how. You need to know some things, but you need to know how to use those things. And wisdom is the combination of those. In your bulletin, there in the front, there's a quote from J.I. Packer. He has a great definition of wisdom. It's the power to see. It's the inclination to choose the best and the highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. So the best response to the question, what do you want me to do for you anytime, but especially during seasons of personal change and cultural change, is God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. So much we could say about wisdom. I want to talk about why we need wisdom and how we get wisdom. First, how we, why we need it. First, how we need it. Second, how to get it. There are many reasons in the Bible given as to why we need wisdom. But this passage, I think, points to one in particular. And I've already alluded to that. We need wisdom so we know how to respond and how to grow during times of change in our lives. When we change... When our circumstances change around us, when our culture changes, we need new wisdom. We need fresh wisdom. We can't simply rely on knowledge or past experience. If you think about Solomon, he was trained, he was taught, he was prayed for, he was groomed for this role of being king by David, but when the time came for him to step into leadership, he didn't say, I know exactly what to do. I was already taught by the best, by King David. He was overwhelmed by the sense of responsibility and said, I need wisdom. Solomon was such an important model for the people who first read the book of Chronicles, and for us as well. Chronicles is the story, it's the history of God's people, it's how he related to them over many hundreds of years, how he renewed his people, how his people often ran from him and resisted him over the years. But what the people who were reading Chronicles many of hundred, many hundred years later, after these events, having experienced the exile, things were very different. Everything had changed. They weren't supposed to look at Chronicles and say, this is going to be exactly how it is today. And these are our expectations. They were meant to apply what they knew about God and His Word to their new situation. And that's wisdom, and that, is, that requires wisdom. God's word doesn't change, God doesn't change, but because we do, and our world does, and life does, we have a constant need for wisdom. Now, just a, a word of application, I have to speak to those of you who I will endearingly call the know-it-alls out there, and I can speak to you very directly because I am one of you. It didn't take too long in our marriage for Amelia to realize that I am somebody who falls in that category because I like to feel like I have answers to things, things that I have no idea what I'm talking about. And for a little while, she would believe me, and then she got wise to what was happening and said, well, how do you, how do you know that? Or like, did somebody tell you that or you read that? That's just, I was forced to basically say, that's just my completely uneducated and uninformed <laughs> opinion on this matter. But for those of you who are the know-it-alls, especially the theology and Bible know-it-alls, you need to know that knowing information about the Bible is not wisdom. Knowing great theology, even great gospel-centered theology, conceptually, that's not wisdom. And fixing yourself 
trying to fix the world through theology and knowledge alone, as wonderful, as important, and as crucial as those things are, will only lead you to two places. You will either be deluded or God, maybe in his grace, will break you of that and teach you. You need more than knowledge. You need wisdom. So we need wisdom because life is always changing, our personal lives. We need wisdom because in our current moment, especially in our day and age, the pace of change is so fast and so complex that we need wisdom maybe more than ever before. And this is a good thing that we have access to so much information that on our fingertips we can find out knowledge about so many different things that we would have had to spend hours in a library searching and finding answers to our questions. We could find those immediately on our phones. That's a good thing. The other, the other week, our dryer broke. It just stopped working. And in the past, I would have said, new dryer, I mean, what am I going to do? But I go online, and there's this awesome tutorial on, on Sears' website, and a guy walks me through the, the steps, and he's like, flip open the dryer, and you open it up. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I didn't even know it did open like this, and it's so simple inside. And so all I had to do was order this new door switch. Got the new door switch, plug it in, and it feels so good. I fixed my dryer. It saved us about like $300, $500, whatever a dryer costs. We can find out so many things that make our lives easier. But it's also a great challenge for us. Also, one of the reflection quotes, it comes from T.S. Eliot. It struck me because he said, in 1934, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Another quote, I don't know if it's, it's in the, um, the reflection quotes. I think it is. It comes from Andy Crouch. He's written a, a great book called TechWise Family. And he says in that book, knowledge these days is very easy to come by, almost too easy given the flood of search results for almost any word or phrase you can imagine. But you can't search for wisdom, at least not online, and it's as rare and precious as ever. Maybe given how complex our lives have become rarer and more precious than ever before. Seems to me that what Andy Crouch is saying is, is, is right that wisdom is and will become even more rare and precious, that we need it more than ever, but it's harder for us to find than it's ever been. But I think what we need to hear as, as, as Christians, my Christian friends, as the church, is that we should make it our personal goal. We should make it our goal as a church community to seek wisdom. Colossians 4, 5 says, walk or live in wisdom towards those who are outside of the faith, that those who are outside of the Christian faith should experience when they meet a Christian or spend time with the church, they should experience wisdom. Maybe if they don't even agree with what we have to say or what we believe, Colossians 4 says, they should be intrigued at least because they know that they're encountering wisdom. And we must acknowledge, for those of you who are new to the Christian faith or exploring, that we as Christians and as a church have not always done this well. Often we're very reactive. Something comes out and we feel like we have to speak immediately and loudly about that particular thing. Often you'll find 
sound bites going forth, and everybody's, I know, engaged in a war of posting and tweets and all that, and sometimes Christians get caught up in that. Is wisdom found in the Twitter sphere? Maybe, maybe not, but we should be cautious about that. And often in the Christian church, we're, we're guilty of oversimplification, taking very complex cultural and ethical issues and oversimplifying them, often in our own desire to feel certain or safe. But when it comes to issues, we could list all kinds of issues, immigration, sexual ethics, racial reconciliation, taxes, whatever it might be, the goal of the Christian, the goal of the Christian church should be to seek wisdom in those things and to speak and share wisdom whenever we speak to those matters. That's why we need wisdom. Well, how can we get it? I was going to display each of these things on the, the PowerPoint. So if you're, if you're taking notes, I'll make sure to tell you when I'm reaching one of my subpoints. But how do we get it? First, we always start at the beginning. Look at verses 1 through 6 again with me in Second Chronicles. They describe the very first thing that Solomon did when he became king. He assembled all the leaders of Israel for worship. This is... Proverbs 9.10, in action, in practice, something Solomon wrote where he said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, what does that mean? That means the submission of our intellect, our desires, and our will to God. And the picture here in 2 Chronicles, in Proverbs 9.10, that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it says this is the starting point for finding wisdom. This is the starting line, the fear of the Lord, the submission of all we are, especially our intellect to God. For those who are the skeptics, the doubters, and the cynics, and some of us who have a skeptical side or a cynical side, we need to hear this. Because we cannot find wisdom by demanding God give us wisdom on our own terms. That's the challenge, that wisdom is found only by meeting God on his terms. And what's very important is the distinction between the sacrifice of our intellect and the submission of our intellect in order to find answers, in order to make sense of life. There's a world of difference. God says you don't sacrifice your intellect, your reason, your thinking, your mind, but you must submit it to me. You'll find wisdom. How to get it always start at the beginning. Secondly, ask for it. Wisdom is a gift that God gives. In order to ask for something, first, we have to become aware of the fact that we need it and we don't have it. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 16, never be wise in your own sight. Never, never, never think you are wise. Let me take a quick quiz. Who loves to say these kinds of things? I don't know. This is too big for me. I'm inadequate for this task. Anybody love to say those things? Nobody. I can tell you I despise saying any of those things. If I say it, it's like I can't even get the words out. Instead, we pretend, we cover up, we act like we know what we're doing. But these feelings of inadequacy are God's ways of showing us and inviting us to ask. We read it in James 1. 5 through 8, if anyone lacks wisdom, God loves to answer that prayer. 
not just with a little wisdom, but he wants to be generous to give us the wisdom we don't have. A quick sub-point here on asking. As we're asking for wisdom, we should ask ourselves, why am I asking for it? Because you might say as you're looking at this, okay, I see how this works. Second Chronicles, this is great. I pray for wisdom, and God gives me money and wealth and fame and everything else that I would have asked him for, but I just have to kind of throw the side door into getting all those things by asking for wisdom. That is not the point of this text, although God did give those things to Solomon. Solomon didn't say, give me wisdom on how to get ahead. Give me wisdom on how to be the most wealthy king. He said, give me wisdom for the task you have called me to do to serve others well. He says, who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? God loves to answer the prayer for wisdom when we're praying for the sake of serving those he's called us to serve. Always start at the beginning, ask for it, and third, allow time for it. We may get the impression here that Solomon asked for wisdom, and bam, all of a sudden, he was, his mind was downloaded with wisdom. And I can't help this, to share this illustration, but one of the greatest movie scenes of all time, from The Matrix, some of you are thinking of it right now, Matrix, the main character, Neo, he gets hooked up to the computer system. And they're downloading all sorts of skills into his mind. And all of a sudden, he wakes up, and he's like, I know Kung Fu. That's a great scene. But that is not how this works. Solomon was not downloaded with all wisdom with the snap of a finger. Think of the wisdom literature in the Bible, Solomon's writings and others. Wisdom is the result of patient reflection and dialogue. In our CBR reading, we've been reading Job, the book of Job in the Bible. It's one of the most frustrating books to read in the Bible because if you were to hear, God has given us a book. It's his answer to the problem of evil and human suffering. You would say, I want to read that book. And then you read Job. It's 42 chapters long, and most of it is poetic dialogue between Job and his friends, and you're going, who's right? Are these guys right? It sounds right. Oh, wait, no, they're not right. What is Job doing? Is he Is he right? Is Job okay? And God comes on the scene, and you hear God. Finally, God is going to clear it all up. And God comes, and he says, I'm going to speak to you out of the whirlwind and ask you all sorts of questions. And you're left going, that's not what I was hoping for, for the answer to the problem of evil. But it's in God's wisdom showing us at least two things, that it takes reflection. He didn't give us just a paragraph and said, the answer to the problem of evil and human suffering is X, Y, Z. If you want to know the real answer, it's found in the wisdom of Job. You're going to have to reflect. You're going to have to ask hard questions. Even the dialogue that happens there between Job and his friends is a model for us. We can't find wisdom on our own. We find it in dialogue with other people on the search for wisdom. C.S. Lewis said, The next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are. And most of us, one of the issues of our time is that we live in what many people have called an echo chamber, right? Where we say, I believe this. This is important. And everyone's like, yes, I believe that too. That's most important. And we can just get our news. We can follow who we want to follow. And everybody is agreeing with us. Wisdom will come when we expand our circle to include wise people 
who disagree with us, who don't believe the things that we believe. That's a path to wisdom. So let me summarize. The dream question from God, the importance of what do you want me to do for you, that question of answering it. The surprising response is asking for wisdom, and now the ultimate answer, how does God answer us and our request for wisdom? When Chronicles wraps up the story of Solomon, flipping all the way to chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, it says this, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, and all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God put into his mind. There's a story in there in 2 Chronicles 9 where this figure, the queen of Sheba, the queen maybe of a North African country, comes and asks him for wisdom and is just mind blown. She's like, you are the most wise person ever. So if I were to conclude this message and say, okay, you need to navigate the changes of your life. You need practical help in the transitions you're facing. You want to experience renewal in those. You need to be as wise as Solomon. That might be somewhat inspiring to you in the moment, but when you see what you're up against, you would say, how can I even get close to somebody like Solomon? He is the wisest person who ever lived. And I think that that forces us to reckon with one of these life realities, that even in our search for just a little wisdom. We say, I don't want all the wisdom of Solomon, just a little wisdom to help me to know what I need to do tomorrow. Even in our search for that little wisdom, wisdom of parenting, wisdom at work, wisdom in our marriage, wisdom in our relationships, the wisdom we need seems so elusive, so hard to find, so hidden. Even Proverbs 2, 5 and 6 says, if you seek wisdom like silver and search for it as a hidden treasure, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Wisdom often seems so hidden. Has anybody heard of Forrest Fenn? Go ahead. Any hands out there? Forrest Fenn? He's a wealthy millionaire. He's hidden a treasure in the Rocky Mountains. And he says, in this treasure is $2 million of gold and jewels. And he said, the reason I've hidden this treasure is so people will get out in nature. And so he's written this little poem about this treasure of how to find it, and people have taken this very seriously. And actually, three people have died looking for this treasure in the wilderness of the Rocky Mountains. I saw this heading this summer just on on the internet. It said, a millionaire says he buried a treasure. A pastor just died looking for it. I was like, I have to click that (laughs) and find out what that is. You got to know. I'm sorry we're laughing. He died. It's just horrible. We shouldn't be laughing. But, but I did click it. And it, it's tragic. People will overextend themselves. People will do crazy things, anything to find a treasure, this hidden treasure. And often wisdom feels like this. God, what should I do? What are you doing in my life? And the answer seems hidden. Is this a treasure hunt? Jesus says one thing about Solomon in the Gospels. Luke eleven twenty nine. It says, the queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. He's talking about himself. Something greater than Solomon is here. We see God's ultimate answer to our need, to our quest for wisdom 
is Jesus. It's been given to us. Colossians 2, 1 through 5. Paul's talking about his struggle for this church, that they, in their hearts, be encouraged. They be knit together in love to reach all the full assurances of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says, I say this to you so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What Paul is saying there, God has given us the riches of his wisdom in his son, in Christ. If you've ever played this game with your kids or played it as a kid with a hot and cold game, something is hidden, and they're looking for it all over the night. You're cold, you're cold, you're cold. You're getting colder, you're getting colder, you're getting hot. You're getting hot, you're burning up, you're going to blow up. In our search for wisdom, in the hiddenness often of our struggle to find out what is God doing? How do I know? Where do I turn? Where are the answers? Paul tells us, you are burning up when you are seeking Jesus, when you are standing in him. In Jesus, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, God has given us all the wisdom we need. It's not always easy. It's not always apparent. But don't go looking anywhere else. Stand in Jesus. He and in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So whatever changes you're facing, whatever changes you're navigating, my encouragement to you is this. Go to Jesus. The wisdom you need is found in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are a God who loves to give wisdom. You are the the all-wise God. We know in our limited human understanding we can't even compare to what we know and to know what we should do with what we even know, the little we do know. I pray for us, each of us, especially those who are experiencing a very difficult transition where there's confusion, where they don't know what to do, they don't know which way is up and down, that you would meet them with great encouragement, that you would help them cry out to you for wisdom and that you would answer with wisdom and help each of us, wherever we stand with you, whether we come and we have questions and doubts, whether we're coming and we're struggling, whether we're coming feeling that we are in a place of renewal, that you would help us stand firm, solid in the wisdom that you have shown us in Jesus. May we go deep into him, finding more and more of the riches that we need to live a life that glorifies you and brings good to the world. We pray in his name. Amen.